listening to the Southwest Tech Daily podcast. Hello and welcome to the Southwest Tech Daily podcast. It's the April edition where we're looking at health tech in the Southwest. I'm Robert Hillier and my co-host is Fayaz Khan and today you will also be hearing from Andy Collier of Devon-based First Data Bank who are helping the NHS deliver the right drugs to patients. Someone's going to prescribe one thing, we can apply our logic to say, in this circumstance, that might not be the best thing to do. We're also hearing from Joe Bevan. He tells us all he can, which is not much at this stage, about this year's Tech Southwest Awards. They're in November and they are happening. But first, let's hear from the amazing Mill Botics, Jackie Arnold and Zeke Steer, who are using socks to help beat dementia. My background is as an engineer working in defence. Maybe seven or eight years ago, my great-grandmother, Kath, had dementia and became aggressive. And my family were trying to care for Kath at home and really struggling with her behaviour. And eventually it reached a point where they concluded that they simply couldn't cope anymore and that the only option available to them was to place Kath in a care home. Um, having seen that journey that uh, my, my great-grandmother sadly took and the outcomes of her ending up in a care home where she really didn't want to be, I decided to switch track with my career. And so I embarked on a PhD in Bristol and uh, I'm now in the process of commercialising that research along with Jackie. Tell us more than about the actual impact it had on your great-grandmother. Well, she was becoming, uh, you know, obviously uh, increasingly distressed and aggressive. The situation reached ahead one Christmas where some money went missing. So she'd set some money aside that she was going to hand out in Christmas cards. And, uh, you know, she'd probably spent it, but she didn't realise that. She thought it was there. And naturally, she concluded that family had stolen that money. Uh, that, that was the only explanation that was uh, viable for her. And so she started accusing people of stealing. She became very aggressive. And it led to a physical confrontation with my grandmother, who was trying to take care of her. And that was really the point at which uh, it was decided that the only option was for her to be in a care home. That's where she would receive the, the sort of care that she needed. And uh, it was quite easy for my grandmother to walk away from that situation. Um, but, you know, not so easy for my great grandmother, who lost her home and all sense of her identity and everything that she held close to her, really. All of that went away when she entered the care home. And um, what was it that took you from that obviously very distressing situation for you and your family to the point that you got to now how did how did that link in your mind uh, come about from seeing that that journey that my great-grandmother went through embarking on the phd at the same time volunteering in a care home for a couple of years and realizing that this escalation in behavior wasn't isolated to my great-grandmother actually very common so it affects about half of people with dementia and when I was volunteering, I was seeing those signs again in the people that I was working with, people becoming distressed, people struggling to communicate what was troubling them. And as a result, things happening that maybe wouldn't have happened had uh, had signs been recognised sooner. And that was really the basis on which we're now developing the smart socks. So it's about alerting carers to signs of distress sooner. How does this distress um, manifest itself? Uh, so, you know, with, with your grandmother, it was she was she was becoming agitated and and possibly um, verbally violent, etc. And but if if someone was wearing these smart socks, how are you alerted to this behavior before it becomes highly escalated? 
I'll hand over to Jackie to answer this one, given her experience in the area. Okay, so I've had um, about 40 years of experience working in health and social care. And a lot of that has been spent with people who are living with dementia. My, my dad also had dementia as well. So for a lot of people, not only with dementia, but also with um, other communication difficulties, such as uh, more advanced learning difficulties, people can sometimes experience anxiety or distress because they don't understand the situation around them. They feel lost or they feel some form of pain and they can't communicate that. They might be uncomfortable um, in their chair and they're unable to move themselves, but also unable to alert somebody um, that, that they are feeling uncomfortable. So I think for all of us, if we're feeling any level of discomfort or distress, we're normally able to um, address that situation ourselves or at least be able to tell somebody who is able to, to help us. With somebody living with dementia or other communication difficulties, then they can't alert somebody um, often because they have um, less access to, to language um, or, or there might just not be a, a carer around um, at, at the time, which is which is less rare. But, um, you know, they're, they're unable to communicate that. So they, these socks will pick up through physiological um, measures in, in the sensors um, that somebody is experiencing a form of distress or anxiety, which could um, be pain. And that will generate an alert to a carer um, so that the carer can respond sooner rather than later. Now, again, with the, the with my benefit of, of working in health and social care, um, the sooner that you're able to address somebody's distress, the, the better, not only for them, obviously, um, but also because the longer the distress happens, then the more heightened it often becomes and the more distressed somebody becomes because um, that there isn't a, a solution. So the socks identify the distress at a very early stage, which allows an early intervention by carers, saving them time because it takes longer to de-stress somebody if they're um, distress has has risen to you know such a, an extent mm. um and why is it a sock that's uh, used to to decide yeah. how to dress someone yeah that's that's a, re a really valid question so we we did look at other forms of, of wearables um but my experience again and, and talking with other carers both professional and unpaid carers is that other wearables just don't work um, there is research that's been carried out in relation to wrist-worn devices um, and in my experience many people with dementia don't like wearing a watch or it's very easy to remove so they will take it off not realizing what what the watch is um, and also you know other forms of, of wearable clothing wouldn't be suitable so Socks are an item of clothing that doesn't really mark anybody out as, as different from, from other people. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's much easier for carers to put on, but it's actually quite difficult for, for some people to, to take off, which means that it's more likely to, to be of use um, in these situations. Mm. And, and also, if I can add from the perspective of the technology, the foot has a very high density of sweat glands, particularly on the soles of the feet. And sweat is one of the key parameters that we use to detect when the person is distressed. 
Uh, so actually, it's a superior la- location for monitoring stress, which is uh, really what we're doing with the smart socks. That's so interesting. So although dementia was the the initial driver and application for this, you, you you found that it can work with other neurological um, disorders as well. Talk to us a bit more about that. Yeah, we, we've had lots of interest from other organisations um, who are working with people with learning disabilities or people with learning disabilities themselves saying that this could be um, of use. Um, also people with mental health difficulties. So ultimately we, we could be looking at a more of a, a self-help type of, of version of, of socks where you know people are alerted to their own distress levels rising because sometimes people are unable to to understand you know how anxious they they are becoming and so potentially the the socks have a much wider application um than, than even the the service user group that that we were initially thinking of which was um, initially dementia and i also see that I mean, it could also be used for research in in dementia and other fields. I mean, there's a, there's very little research in dementia. You know, we don't know what parameters or what will affect someone getting dementia, or we know what the the outer aspects of it are, and we know what the maybe physical attributes of it are, but we don't know how it gets to that place. Um, and I wonder if this could be then used for academic research into understanding dementia a bit more as well. Our first product, which we're calling Discovery, is targeted at research around not just dementia, but various aspects of ageing. And we recognise that one of the challenges with this kind of research is getting somebody to comply with using a wearable. Um, Our partners are um, based at Imperial College London, the UK Dementia Research Institute, and they've been trialling a range of different wrist-worn devices and finding that people with dementia simply won't use them. So getting something like a sock out there that people can use, they can engage with, they can enjoy... Um, and ultimately that leads to data that is a value for understanding that progression of dementia and the symptoms uh, will be extremely valuable and, and may yield new insights, yeah. And also the, the app that accompanies the, the version um, that would be used in, in care settings, um, that has an electronic diary of the person's distress, so it actually is able to store all the information about the time of, of, of the distress, um, the care it is able to input what they believe triggered that um, distress, as well as the, the specific behaviour that was displayed, as well as the, the support that was provided. So it also provides um, an analysis of somebody's distress for clinicians to help to, to support the person better. Mm, as well as families, uh, linking this yes. back to yeah. my great-grandmother yeah. again. One of the reasons that she became so distressed is because my family simply didn't understand that her aggression and her symptoms were part of her experience with dementia. And they didn't know how to respond to that. So through the app, we can use it as a training tool, help educate people that this is a facet of dementia that can be managed if the appropriate interventions are, are introduced and you know, that the triggers are identified and treated early, which is exactly what we're doing with the smart socks. And I suppose because there's, there are so many different um, areas uh, of interest around this technology, which is reflected in, in, in the backing that you've had, at what stage did you realise just how significant a, a, a market gap that you'd, that you'd found here? For me, um, and I think for many of our of the people who are partnering with us, I think as soon as Zeke um, approached me, we, we met when Zeke was still doing his PhD and I was 
at the time working for a health and social care organisation. And he approached me with his idea. And the more that we talked through that idea, the more it, it just seemed like one of those light bulb moments as, you know, in terms of why has somebody never designed something like this before? Because I could see an immediate need for it. And, and that was based on both my personal and professional experience. And that's also um, been replicated in, in the vast majority of people who have approached us um, in terms of the organisations that we are um, working with to evaluate the, the SOCs further. And where are you guys based? Are you based here in the southwest? Uh, the companies where, where in the southwest? <laughs> Sorry. They're, they're, we, so we have offices in Bristol. We're um, actually quite a remote team. Uh, so I I'm originally based in uh, near Oxford, but I commute into Bristol. And Jackie's in Wales. And we also have wow. people in the north of England. We have people around London. So yeah, we we are quite distributed. That's amazing. A nice national presence. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Is there um anything around the 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 Bristol in particular the burgeoning tech scene that's been useful in terms of the the increased clustering around health tech that's that's coming out of uh, of both universities? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Set Squared has been uh, extremely valuable. We are Set Squared member company. They are really part of that health tech cluster and understanding how that can be developed and um, and recognised, really, uh, alongside Future Space as well, where we have an office. So we, we've had a lot of support. I think um, we are raising investment at the moment and we're finding it difficult in the prevailing climate. Again, being in Bristol, which is, I believe, the third ranked um, centre for investment in the UK, is very helpful. But we do need to do more work to get outside of Bristol and raise awareness and uh, you know really that's one of the reasons why we're here today so looking looking further afield and looking looking globally uh, are there any international competitors because obviously it's the case isn't it with every with every fantastic idea it's it's hard to believe that somebody hasn't done this before um but uh, so is, is this is this something else that you've uh that you you found anybody else doing there are currently no direct competitors at all so this is a, a very unique Product. So we, we have um, a patent pending on the, the AI um, in particular, but there, there isn't anything at all um, that there are various devices that um, are used for fall detection, for example, but nothing that is looking at the, the specific um, areas that, that we are in terms of alleviating and, and supporting somebody's distress and anxiety. Who would you say is your ideal client? Is it individuals? Is it care homes? Is it hospitals? Like what? We're, we're initially marketing to businesses, so so care organisations initially. Um, but but we we do see very much a market with maybe a, a very slightly um, slightly different product um, to individuals um, and people um, also living in in the community. So it has a very wide market um and also obviously potentially a, a global market because you know dementia mental health and learning disabilities are are you know a, a global um issue and just just finally for me uh, what other uh, technologies that currently exist uh, so what other partners do you think you might be able to work with to enhance and include work that's already been done in 
in in similar fields and similar research around this area? That's a very good question. Yeah, there's a real push at the moment to uh, get care organisations to adopt digital technologies. And really, there are probably going to be several preeminent uh, digital social care platforms that come out of that. And we're very keen to integrate with them over a longer term. So, you know, it's really important that you can tie together different kinds of sensor data. Maybe you've got environmental sensor data, uh, things around the environment that that person is situated in, alongside the physiological data that you might collect from the socks, alongside situational data to do with, you know, what that person's currently engaged in, what sort of activities they're doing, how they've been interacting with people around them. The more data you can bring together, the more insights you can generate, the better you can support that person and, and uh, aid their care. So really the long-term proposition is that we will be integrating with some of these systems to provide uh, really a, a crucial piece of that puzzle. So I'm presuming you guys are looking for investment. Uh, how much are you looking for and what is that money going toward? Uh, yeah, really good question. So we've been very successful with grant funding to date and, and non-dilutive funding. We have been funded by Alzheimer's Society, which is the UK's leading dementia charity. And we've also had nearly a million in grants from Innovate UK. But we do need to match that with investment. And uh, it's really critical that we that we are able to match that because we want to progress with some very ambitious plans to develop the smart socks for applications um, covering use in the community, but also within care homes. You know, this is really a call out to investors that if you are uh, interested in being part of the future of dementia care, then do get in touch. Uh, I believe our contact details will be shared and we would love to hear from you. So, wow, that was impressive. Uh, that's Jackie Arnold and Zeke Steer telling us about the personal story behind the foundation of their company and where it might be headed. Yeah, that that is definitely something that is highly needed and, and would be so useful for not just nurses, I think, but also, you know, when people are visiting their loved ones, it would be really useful for them as well. Okay, let's hear now from Andy Collier from Devon-based First Data Bank. We started by asking him what it is they do. Our vision is a healthier world through the power of medical knowledge. So primarily drugs and prescriptions is kind of our business. We're part of the Hearst Health Network. We're the leading provider of drug knowledge, uh, helping healthcare professionals make precise decisions. That's the bit really, is making very high quality decisions that are actionable based on kind of the data that's presented to us. Um, so we work quite hard as techies to make high quality, deep integrations with other systems, which achieves very person-centric guidance. So that is, we look at patient attributes um, in data, like uh, demographics and drugs that are being taken, conditions that people have got, that kind of thing. And that helps us make very specific guidance. And because it's very specific and very tailored to an individual kind of circumstance, uh, that's then very actionable. Um, okay. And we've got, we got quite a broad range of solutions. Um, but that kind of actionability is really where where we put our niche. The different sort of solutions manage that in slightly different ways from just presenting very tailored data to to proper pressing buttons to to move that actionability on. So it's not just information, but information that can actually make a difference, I suppose. So I guess you would work with clinics and GPs and other groups medical groups to decide the best medicine for a patient 
Uh, yeah, yeah, that's one one of the things particularly. Yeah, is um, so the systems that hospitals, for example, would use, we would integrate with those systems rather than kind of individual clinics. It's more um, kind of regional uh, integrations, um, and presenting that data to, for for example, someone's going to prescribe one thing. We can apply our logic to say, in this circumstance, that might not be the best thing to do so there might be guidance that suggests in a certain circumstance for example i'm not clinical by the way so uh i'm technical and so any kind of clinical stuff don't take advice on that from me uh so there might be some guidance that says um for a diabetic over the age of 50 for example they should have a blood test every six months we can spot whether those markers are enabled for that interaction and say well rather than prescribing this thing maybe they should have a blood test first you know those kind of interactions that aren't necessarily a different prescription although they could be there might be a cheaper alternative for example that does yeah. the same kind of clinical outcome um, but but might help with the the pathway or the best practice that that, that patient should be should be following I get it. So you, you kind of streamline the service and then I guess also make things a bit, little bit cheaper for, for the NHS on the whole because. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We save, we save millions and millions uh, over the time. Uh, I'll get, I'll, obviously it changes daily, uh, but we have saved very many millions of the NHS by stopping prescriptions that don't need to happen or suggesting clinical alternatives that have the same or better outcomes, but, but are cheaper either at a an individual multiplied many many times because uh, because of the number of interactions that we have with with kind of patients every day um, or the very high cost individual drugs sometimes there are there are significantly cheaper alternatives to a single prescription Andy there would, there would seem to be an enormous amount of potential data points that you could impact. In, in the work you're doing, where does that information come from, and how do you, how do you limit what it is that you uh, that you can you can put in? Our interfaces with the clinical systems, so the data lives uh, well primarily with the patient or with the GP. Um, the information is sent to us at the point where we need it, so we traditionally don't store that the patient information that gets sent to us and that can be filtered in a number of ways really we have we have a kind of a filtering system that helps not receive data that we wouldn't consider as part of our evaluation so that helps both in terms of performance so that we can receive less data and that's all faster uh, but also in terms of kind of noise that we don't need to know about and also GDPR and data sensitivity kind of things. If we don't get the data, then there's there's no responsibility anywhere for that. Then we run the data points that we've got against our kind of internal IP uh, in our engine um, and give the results back. And when that interaction is complete, then we don't need that patient data anymore. So that go- goes in the bin. Your interaction is primarily with the uh well so primarily is with the is with uh with a clinician do, do you consider the end user to be the patient or is the end user the the the, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the clinical level so i mean I suppose, my, my, so my question for that would be as a patient 
how do you how do you how do you notice or how how are people impacted by the intervention that that you take yeah good question um it's a complicated relationship between users benefactors and payers that we have as as a patient we're very much behind the scenes um you probably wouldn't ever hear of our systems because even the gp that is sat looking at your patient data that is not our system either that system talks to our system um, or has our data embedded within it depending on you know the solution and and the, the way that it's being implemented uh so as a patient your benefit is by the quality of healthcare that you get and we get paid effectively by being involved in that better outcome i mean is any of this hampered by by the size and scale of the nhs i mean how easy is it is it to to provide this information so if we take it we're talking fairly specifically here about one of the solutions um, called optimize rx we integrate with the piece of software that the GP sat in front of, and there aren't very many of those. There's three really in the UK. And so we've put a lot of effort with those those software vendors that, that the GP interacts with all the time, or in fact, the practice interacts with all the time. They tend to sort of book their appointments and keep their history within this system. And our interaction is with that system. So we, we've worked with those vendors to on on the APIs, which is effectively what our system is, so that it's it's very focused around the workflow. So it doesn't get in the way of the GP's work because they're they're busy people. To what extent have you had to build this software to integrate specifically with the existing platforms the NHS uses? And what does that mean to having having global applications for what you do we we have had to build specifically for the integrations obviously we've we haven't approached that in a right let's integrate with everyone all in one go we've done an integration we've learned from it we've made it as good as it can can be and then enhanced it for the second integration and gone back and learned from that and etc etc um so it's forever we're forever honing a slightly better integration there are communication means and standards that we can use to soften that a little bit how that relates globally is a little bit different the stuff that we've kind of talked about so far we've focused very much on the uk market and that's because most regions have fairly significant unique um, attributes about them um, and particularly the NHS and the way that we're set up in the UK is quite unique globally um, so our, our kind of global products are are quite different they, they perform very similar functions of looking at patient properties and suggesting uh, medical improvements or clinical improvements, um, but the drivers behind them and the way that they interact with the data are quite different. Um, so we're actually part of, um, so FDB UK is part of FDB, which is uh, an international organization. Um, and 
the two arms uh, operate the globe with different products. So FDB Inc, uh, which is the US arm, uh, look after US and Canada only. Um, and then we look after the rest of the world. Our UK products are one set, one suite, and then everything else is another. And so the products themselves are quite different. That's complicated, isn't it? Complicated because it is complicated. I mean, you can't simplify something <laughs> that's inherently as complicated as our NHS. I mean, it's, it's at the world's fourth biggest employer. I mean, it's an extraordinarily complicated organisation. So if you're... Yeah, yeah. And the drivers behind clinical decisions are quite different. So the NHS is very much about best practice. Places like the US, for example, it's very insurance driven. And so the kind of the decisions that are wanting to be made can be quite different. Mm, mm. It's very interesting, actually. Okay. And um, with regards to the Southwest, I mean, what does it mean for this, for, for Exeter, for the Southwest to have this sort of technology operating from here, for, for this to be the, the birthplace of it? Yeah, it was born out of mid-1980s, out of a collaboration with the University of Exeter and some clinical clever people um, who, uh, you know, back in 1985, the world was kind of digitizing and basically the, the, the collaborators got together and said, drug data, surely we can make this digital. Um, and there it started really. So, so we've been around for sort of four decades, honing this information and getting it into a point where it can be as effective as possible. What it, what it means to us in the Southwest is traditionally, we employ uh, clinical researchers, so, uh, and pharmacists particularly, is one big side of the business, is keeping all of our, the, the logic that our engine engines can run has to be managed by people who understand the clinical impact of stuff. And that is quite different from the implementers of the system who have to be able to write quite complicated distributed systems and they're two quite different disciplines traditionally and so the the two biggest parts of our business or the two biggest kind of functions in our business are the clinical people who take all of that drug data and best practice information from you know welcome trust and nice and things like that and turn that into logic that we can execute. Andy Collier, uh, thanks to him, from Devon-based First Data Bank. I was a bit confused at the start when I began researching the company because it's a bit B2C, sorry, it's a bit B2B, not B2C, so they don't need customers to know what they're doing or why. Um, but I do get it now. And mind-boggling because of the data involved in the complexity of working with the NHS. But it's also very useful because obviously, you know, if you are someone who has um, a health issue, the AI that they're using is so individual to you, it will really help make sure that you get exactly the right drugs for your condition specific to you, which makes all of the difference, I think, in, in your recovery. Um, or maintenance of, of that illness, which is really, really good. And with a, an ageing population and the demands on the NHS, it's the only way of managing something at this kind of, this kind of scale. Extraordinary. Absolutely. Absolutely.
the Southwest Tech Daily podcast. Shall we hear from Joe now? Yes. Short and sweet. Well, short. Are you talking about Joe at the interview? I don't think I've ever met him. <laughs> Let's hear from Joe Bevan. He is talking to us about this year's Tech Southwest Awards. Hi, Samaya and Robert. Thank you for having me. Samaya and Robert, it's Fiasa. Right. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> I know, I just wasn't talking to you, Fiasa. Well, that, Hi, Fiasa, as well. That is, that, is, that, is a, that is a possible change we are considering. Actually, that might be quite a good... So, I mean, Joe is talking about Samaya, who's our producer, and is actually on the podcast today. This is your first introduction, isn't it, Samir, into the Tech Southwest Awards, which Joe is going to talk to us about. Are you excited? Yes, very much happy to be here. And is it true you've been nominated? I hope I am. <laughs> For best tech <laughs> podcast producer ever. You've got the award. That's I'm it. You won. definitely winning that one. You won, you won, definitely. Um, so, <laughs> Joe, what's the scoop? Are there any new awards? When is it happening? Please tell me it's still November. Yes, so still November. Is, that's our traditional month to hold the awards. It's a big one this year, 2023. This is the fifth year uh, of the Tech Southwest Awards. So it's a bit of a birthday for us. So it's going to be big and it's going to be fun. Um, building on from last year. So last year's awards were the biggest ever. In fact, they, do, they get bigger every year. So I'm kind of used to saying that. Um, but we had over 300 entries last year. Um, and it's a range of categories. We had about 25 categories last year. We do have a few more this year. So we've changed them slightly. We've taken some out, we've added some in. So all will be revealed when the awards launch on the 3rd of May. And that's when we open for entries as well. So keep an eye out for that. So I can't reveal too much now, I'm afraid. Oh, that's fine. So it's just a few days away. That's exciting. I mean, I really want to know where it's going to be held because I really loved every single venue that we've had, including the one we had during COVID. Yes, well, the online venue, that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, that was an interesting one. It was successful. I'm, I hope we don't have to do that again, but yeah. I'm glad we managed to make, make a show of it nonetheless. It is a feature of the Tech Southwest Awards. We try and make them an event that you're looking forward to going to, an awards event that you're you're looking forward to going to, and you're not going to be sitting at a table for three hours kind of wishing to be somewhere else really or looking at someone across the room that you really want to speak to but you can't stand up so we keep them dynamic and we keep them kind of we try and use fun venues so there's always an exciting feature so as you say in, in the pandemic we were limited by being online but we did make it a fun virtual experience uh, nonetheless and then we held it at the market hall in Devonport which for those who haven't been there is a massive immersive dome basically it's like a cinema that wraps around you was that the one uh, the I'm year right. before last year? That was a 2021. Yes. yes. I remember 2021. that. 2021. Yeah. That was amazing. It feels like a previous life. I think I'm writing saying it's the only dome of its kind in Europe. I think there's one in Canada that's similar, a very unique space. People who are near Devonport, go and check it out. It, I mean, when they say immersive experience, that was 100% an immersive experience. It's I've never amazing. enjoyed EastEnders so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we couldn't get you out, Robert. <laughs> Cliffhanger. And also, I mean, it wasn't just the dome, breaking people up into groups, taking them around the space and having kind of interactive elements with our sponsors, including headline sponsor Bishop Fleming, who are actually back again in 2023. So they've supported the awards every year it's been running. So five years working with Bishop Fleming on the awards is fantastic. So that was the market hall. Yeah, what, what, a, what a show that was. And then last year, of course, I mean, you guys know because you hosted it. Loved um, last year. It was amazing. Samir was completely amazing. shocked when she saw the pictures. Yes, it looked absolutely amazing. And I felt like for this year's one, I hope I can actually 
take a trip in Namibia. You never know. That would be, that would be very cool. Yeah. So, so, so Joe, just a quick a, a quick question. So. We did the Market Hall, which was obviously amazing, immersive dome, EastEnders. Then an award ceremony in the shadow of Concord. How many places and venues do we have in the southwest where we can keep going up and up and up every year? When are we going to run out, do you think? And we're going to have to move to Wembley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the next that's the next destination. I mean, that is the challenge. So what we try and do is not only have these cool venues, but we try and move around and we try and, you know, showcase what's going on in different parts of the region. So that's, you know, we've had Devon, uh, well, we've had Devonport, we've had Plymouth, we've had Exeter, we've had Bristol. So folks listening can kind of rack their brains and think of other cool venues around the region that might be, uh, we might be talking to now. So nothing can be confirmed at this stage. I, I, I'm tight-lipped, I'm afraid, but uh, we are looking to showcase another standout venue in another part of the region so i would say watch this space home park is nailed on isn't it definitely home park <laughs> that's it absolutely yeah you've, kiss, you've got me yeah. how did you know kiss in june tech southwest awards in november gosh um, I, I didn't know they were still going you know yeah i mean they're well into their 90s <laughs> no they aren't when are they on the podcast then they're, they're, they're up next are they that'd be a good hit gene, gene simmons, simmons and paul stanley on the podcast. Isn't, isn't Gene Simmons in that Workday advert? No, Paul Stanley's Paul in Stanley's Workday work advert. Yeah. That's so weird. Ace Freely and Peter Chris. Not many people listening to the Tech Southwest podcast can probably name all four members no. uh, of Kiss, but I'm... We could have done a competition, couldn't we, write in with the other two members? <laughs> well, the fact with asking people to write in would be amazing. <laughs> do, we have a no, could... do, do we have a postal address? <laughs> no, when we say write in, <laughs> oh, Robert, we mean, okay, you know, tweet us or, or LinkedIn. Come on. I was thinking of the Kiss generation. Oh, right. <laughs> you weren't thinking right in. That's hilarious. Thinking, I know my audience. I know the audience. Yeah. Okay, so, by the way, where did we have the first ever Tech Southwest Awards? I've forgotten. Yeah, it's was grown. it the Rougemont Hotel? Yes, Hotel in Exeter. Oh, it was, it was yes. Awesome. How did I forget? That was quite nice, actually. We had a good setup there. Do you remember? We had our little studio set up yeah yeah the podcast stand back in the days when it it wasn't the southwest tech daily podcast was it, it was no different. it was different let's not talk about that let's pretend like that never happened <laughs> we were yeah. always yeah the southwest tech daily stand the the first ever tech southwest awards. yes yes that's what... <laughs> yeah um... but that's the thing i mean that was that wasn't it didn't have a concord hanging from the roof and it didn't have a imax theater that you could walk into but it uh we try and make the most of every every kind of venue so you know even just a big space you know there's so much you can do with technology these days you can have vr experiences you can bring in you know whatever it might be laser shows whatever so you can you can tell from what i'm saying that our brains at tech southwest are, yeah. are running through the options I'm liking this. Listen, I think the thing is, the best thing about the Tech Southwest Awards, I mean, whenever we speak to people, the one thing that they say is, one, everyone is super friendly. So that's nice. So you guys, mm. you know, keep doing what you're doing about that. Um, and two, it's such a great place to network because we are so varied. There's, it's such a big space across the region. There's, there's so many little hubs all across. Tech Southwest just brings all of those people together in such a lovely way on such a really fun night and you're you're networking but it's it's like fun it's work but good work well, and we've you know we've got businesses who are four hours drive away from each other yeah which most other regions are inconceivable that you know if you want to get from you know from winchester to to st ives 
<laughs> you're gonna you, it's 200 right. it's 200 plus miles so it's very difficult for people to come together most people are probably the only opportunity they actually have during the year to meet other people who may be who may be in their sectors face to face we shouldn't underestimate you know marriages are made i would imagine i, I don't know if we've had a tech southwest marriage yet but uh i think it means a business anyone... marriage joe no i don't i actually do mean an actual, <laughs> an actual tech southwest awards <laughs> wedding that's exciting. yeah i mean it's been five years since the first one so the timeline makes you know if anyone out there is met at a tech southwest awards event and is now happily betrothed or married let, let us know tweet us or do something else high tech and anybody mm. else who uses the word betrothed <laughs> yes i was gonna say yeah, your partner never marry anyone from work and then i just realized i met robert at work <laughs> It wasn't the what? same work though, really. It was during the course of work. It wasn't the same work. It's Still. like it's like if you got married to the man who came to fix the boiler. You know, I met him at work. I mean, you were both working. Okay. Fine. I mean, we spend so much of our lives working, don't we? It's if you can't meet your your partner at work, it does rule out. That's true. A lot of potential matchmaking time. That's true. Anywho, is there any other? Gossip you can give us. I mean, you told us nothing. Is yeah, that, is this issue? is the problem that we have, Joe. Come on, tell us more. What can you tell us? Yeah, sneak it's, something it's onto this podcast that no one else is going to know. Next Wednesday, May the third. So May it's Wednesday. 3rd. So anyone out there, follow us uh, on LinkedIn, follow us on Twitter, sign up to our newsletter, and you'll be among the first to know when we release the categories, and and you'll be ready to decide to enter. Since this month's theme is health, what health uh, awards do we have? Yeah, so there is a health tech category. So that's for any anyone, any organization working in or around the health space with a kind of innovation or technological angle. So last year's winner, we had Neuronostics win that, um, and it, that was sponsored by FDB Health. So we've already heard from Andy Collier from FDB Health, and they will be uh, sponsoring the Health Tech Award this year, which is absolutely fantastic. It's great to have them back. It's Joe Bevan from Tech Southwest giving us all the details that he has at the moment about this year's awards. In the next episode, there'll be a bit more detail. There couldn't be less detail. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, the tension and the excitement will start to build. I'm very excited because every year the Tech Southwest Awards are amazing. And as I said um, when we were speaking to Joe, you know, one of the things that we always find is that it's an excellent, excellent place to network and to find out more and to just feel a bit more part of this really, really great community that I think Tech South West has built because, you know, we're so far away, all of us from each other, that having the awards is a great anchor in the uh And I think the challenge they set themselves is how do they keep making it bigger and better? Yeah. As I say, it's gonna be have to be at the uh at the Santiago Bernabeo in a couple <laughs> of years. Yeah. The amount of people who go. But it's brilliant. Can't wait. Okay, so that's all we have time for now. But thank you so much for listening, guys. It's been absolutely wonderful. I've really enjoyed doing the podcast the last few years. You know, we've actually been doing the podcast for the last... This will, this is the fourth year that we're doing this podcast. Why are you saying goodbye? I'm not saying goodbye. Oh. I'm just ending the episode. Oh, but, okay. But I think... It sounded like a farewell. No, it's we've not a really farewell. really doing it, but... <laughs> No, it's just because we're also having, you know, just like the Tech Southwest Awards is having a little bit of a birthday. Mm. We're having a bit of a birthday as well because this is our fifth. You know, November will be the first, will be the fifth year of this podcast. Yeah, four years. Yeah, the fourth year. Oh, it's not that long then. No. Not even worth marking, really. <laughs> you know what? If your kid was four, you'd mark it. So you know what? I'm marking this podcast. If they, if they put the effort in. 
Let's skip one. Yeah, tell the tall kids they go nuts. So thank you so much for listening. If you want to be part of the podcast, get in touch with Samia, our producer, who you met on this podcast. This is the first time you met her, everybody. I thought you were telling me. <laughs> you looked at me as you said it. First time you... Because I have to look at you. There isn't anyone else to look oh, at. In the, you know, this I is don't look at you. I look slightly past you. I know, but that's because obviously... When you're autistic, you ha- you do those kinds of things. It's different for me, right? Because I have I I don't have a problem looking in the eye. Ah, uh, anyway. I think maybe it is your one eye that's <laughs> okay. So we're going into the realms of weirdness now. So I'm definitely ending this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It was really really wonderful doing it this time. I really enjoyed this help uh, episode. If you want to be on the podcast, please get in touch with Samaya. It's samaya at evanesco.co.uk. You can also email info at evanesco.co.uk. But um, wherever you're listening to our podcast, you'll be able to see Samaya's email address. So if you have a problem with the spelling of her name, don't worry. It's all there in the write-up. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram at SWTechDaily or just message at Tech Southwest and we will see you next month. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Southwest Tech Daily podcast.